If asking your mate down the pub about vaping, here's what they'd probably say. No one agrees if it's safer or not, so you might as well smoke anyway. Now what your mate needs is a Cochrane review, all the facts have been checked at least twice. They'd find there's a lot that the experts agree on, I might give you different advice. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Nicola Linson. I'm Jamie Hartman Boyce. And this is the second episode of our podcast series, Let's Talk E-Cigarettes, which is a companion to our living systematic review of e-cigarettes for quitting smoking. For this review, we search the e-cigarette literature every month and find out what's new. And we'll be summarising what we find here in this podcast. So thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode of the podcast. We've had some really great feedback, although we are well aware that there is still plenty of room for improvement. And I think that's a good point for me to say thank you to everyone on Twitter for your kind efforts to try and crowdfund me a microphone. Unfortunately, uh, I have an unreliable authority that the issue is not actually with my microphone, but with my surroundings. So uh, I had been recording from either my kitchen or my garage. Right now I am in my garage, which is a concrete block essentially uh because my three and five year old are in the house which would probably make sound quality even worse um but what i'm trying this time and hopefully i sound a bit better is i'm literally recording from under a blanket so nicola is looking at me covered by a huge pink fleecy blanket which might improve the sound uh and certainly at least makes this feel a bit comedic so Our latest search was at the beginning of this month, at the beginning of January, and this time around we found six new papers. One of those was linked to a study we'd already included, and another one is an ongoing study. In the ongoing study, we don't have that much detail on it, so we don't know at this stage whether or not it'll be included, but we'll look at any papers that eventually come out of it to check. So those remaining four papers were four completely new studies, and we're just about to take you on a whirlwind tour of those in our next section, in a nutshell. So the first new study we found was a paper where the lead author was Florian Scheiben from the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland and was published in the Harm Reduction Journal in 2020. It was a very small study of 23 people who were recruited at an Irish-supported temporary accommodation service for people experiencing homelessness. This was a non-randomised study and all participants had to be currently smoking at the beginning of the study. All participants were given an e-cigarette called the Endura T22e and two 10ml nicotine liquids which were available in a variety of strengths and flavours. The outcomes of interest to us in this study were carbon monoxide levels and side effects, which were measured at weeks 1, 4, 8 and 12 of the study. There was a high dropout rate of 20%, which meant that actually only nine participants completed the intervention. The participants had high levels of addiction and smoked a relatively high number of cigarettes per day, approximately 25. Mean carbon monoxide measurements decreased from 21 parts per million to 16 parts per million, which was a... 35% reduction in their CO levels. This decrease was not statistically significant, however that is not surprising as the study was underpowered due to the very low number of people that completed it. Six of the nine participants reported the following side effects, 
coughing, runny nose, bleeding nose, slight sweating, dizziness, increased phlegm and a burning sensation at the back of the throat. However, all of these would be considered relatively minor in a randomised control trial. This study was funded by Knowledge Action Change, which is a private company funded by the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, which is linked to the tobacco industry. My second paper was published in the journal AIDS Care in 2020 and was led by Jessica Yinkst from the Penn State University College of Medicine in the US. It also recruited a population of people who smoked. So in this case, that was people living with HIV and AIDS. This study recruited 17 people, so it was also small, and implemented a crossover design over three weeks. There were two types of e-cigarettes used. One was the blue cigar-like device with a 24 milligram per milliliter nicotine concentration and the other was the Ego button operated device with a 36 milligram per milliliter nicotine concentration. Both used tobacco flavoured liquids. Participants were randomly split into two groups and each group used one of the e-cigarette types for a week. After that first week they all had a week where they stopped using e-cigarettes and then in the final week of the study they used the e-cigarette that they hadn't used previously. Again, this study looked at carbon monoxide levels and compared these between the two different types of e-cigarettes that were used. They found that CO, or carbon monoxide, significantly reduced using both products, but there was no significant difference between the two product types. Fab, great to hear about those. Nicola, particularly, I think, um, nice to see more and more work being done in some of these harder to reach populations. So people familiar with our existing review will know that there is a study in there as well in people experiencing homelessness led by Lynn Dawkins and colleagues. That's again a relatively small um, pilot study and, and I think I speak for Nicola and I when I say we really hope to be seeing more research and bigger studies in these populations moving forward. So the third paper we found was a bit different. It was published in the journal Addictive Behaviours and was led by Dr. Jenny Osga Hess at West Virginia University. It was supported through state, federal and university funding. And it was a pilot study, which means it was conducted really to help inform the design of a potential larger study or studies, because in this case, what the authors were particularly interested in this paper was whether the method they were using to collect data worked well. That's obviously not something that our review is interested in, but we are including this study because it did look at carbon monoxide as well, which is an outcome we're interested in. So in this study, 60 adults who smoked were assigned to either use only their brand of cigarettes or to a second generation e-cigarette to use as they liked and were followed up over four weeks. The e-cigarette in question was a Kanger Mini Pro Tank 2 and they used a nicotine concentration of 18 milligrams per milliliter. They could choose between three flavor options. And as I said before, they did measure carbon monoxide levels. Now, it was in a relatively small group of participants and the authors didn't formally test for a difference between the groups, but the levels of carbon monoxide appear to have been lower in the e-cigarette group than in the cigarette group. And as I, we said earlier, there are four studies. The fourth one is from Kim Pulvers and her team, published in JAMA Network Open. Funding for this came from the National Institutes for Health. As I said, this trial was led by Dr. Kim Pulvers, and she's based at the California State University, San Marcos. The senior author for this was Professor Jazz Alualia at Brown University in the U.S. And I was really excited to get the opportunity to speak to him about this. And so you'll hear more about this new study in our next section, which is our deep dive. And I think it's fair to say Nicola and I were also particularly excited 
as I've said before, we get pretty excited about e-cigarette research generally, but here this was one we really wanted to cover in our deep dive, partly because it's one of the few to look at newer generation e-cigarette devices, and also because it looks at non-white populations in the U.S. who are historically under-researched. Now, uh, to my own mortification and just to set the scene, this interview also took place under a blanket. So first off, I'll let Jazz tell you about his history and how he got into harm reduction research. So I've been working in this field of nicotine addiction and tobacco for about 30 years. And my focus uh, for that time has been on marginalized and underserved populations. And I do a variety of different uh, approaches to working on this, but basically clinical trials. But additional to that, qualitative research and some epidemiology work. And traditionally, pharmacotherapy to help smokers quit smoking, as well as behavioral approaches. In fact, um, when e-cigarettes began to come on the scene, I essentially ignored them, and I did not sort of move in that direction at all. And in fact, as well, um, I focused and uh, stayed uh, on the course of quitting, and sort of abstinence only, if you will. And um, I did not sort of believe in this concept, so to speak, of harm reduction. While I used seatbelts and didn't eat too big a slice of a cake, uh, in terms of tobacco, I was not thinking about harm reduction in the way that I probably should, and in fact was a little bit uh, rigid about it. And then something maybe tipped off in me when I just began to realize that, uh, you know, this may be something of interest. So we did some pilot work together, um, Dr. Kim Pulvers, Dr. Nikki Nolan, and myself, collaborators across the country at different institutions, and we began to get excited about what we were finding. The pilot work suggested that people could switch and get off combustibles, because in fact it's combustibles uh, that are the worst and the most deadly. This led to us doing a randomized trial, and to some extent I've become a convert. I've become very interested in the concept of harm reduction. I accept it for so many other aspects of um, medicine and healthcare, in diabetes, in um, obesity, in nutrition, in, um, in substance use, alcohol, opioids, uh, seat belts, helmet laws. It's, it's just sort of everywhere. We all practice harm reduction every day. And so it, I find it fascinating when people who generally accept all these things are not accepting it in the field of uh, tobacco and uh, nicotine research. So if you will, to some extent, I'm a convert. So... In terms of harm reduction, there's actually no one agreed definition for what that means. But broadly speaking, what people tend to mean when they talk about harm reduction are a range of policies, usually in public health, that are designed to lessen the negative impact associated with various behaviors. So as Jazz mentioned, in the case of seatbelts, the behavior that we're lessening the negative impact of is driving. One of the most well-known harm reduction policies in addiction research is methadone treatment for people addicted to heroin. It's really interesting, Jamie, that there are very well-accepted harm reduction policies, like you just mentioned, like seatbelts and wearing bicycle helmets. But in the field of tobacco research, people seem to be more split on how they feel about that. Um, do you think this could be dependent on how people and researchers view the addiction and that they're perceiving the main harm maybe being from the addiction itself? And if that were the case, they might view switching one addiction for another, say in the form of nicotine treatment like NRT or e-cigarettes. They may see that as unacceptable, um, whereas 
maybe people who are researchers in harm reduction see that as an acceptable alternative because we hope that it's basically reducing the harm uh, from smoking and and certainly um, in the case of NRT we have a lot of long-term evidence to say that that is much safer than smoking and now we're accumulating more evidence that obviously suggests that e-cigarettes are are less harmful than smoking as well and so yeah to some people that's certainly a suitable alternative. I think it's a really interesting point I think there's probably a multitude of complex reasons why there might be slightly more hesitancy to embrace harm reduction in this area. And of course, you just mentioned nicotine replacement therapy. And in some ways, we might even think of nicotine replacement therapy as a harm reduction tool. But it's not often spoken about in that way. I think one of the challenges here, of course, is the troubled history of the tobacco industry and their potential role in e-cigarette research and in harm reduction methods. But I think you're absolutely right that another element of it is just when we think about tobacco addiction, what do we think the fundamental problem is? How do we frame it? Is the fundamental problem addiction, in which case switching one addiction with another doesn't necessarily seem the most intuitive solution? Or is the fundamental problem the harms caused by that addiction, right? And I think you and I probably both fall fall more into that latter paradigm of thinking the fundamental problem is the harms. Um, and I think that actually brings us nicely onto to the next thing Jazz talked about, which is why he was talking about some of the harm he's seen and why he is is really motivated to address that. But it's profound if I think about it. I'm, I'm a physician. I'm trained in, in medicine policy and epidemiology and public health. And so I think about things at the population level, but I also think about things at the individual level. I'll never rem- forget a patient I had when I was a resident at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill in the late 80s who had late stage COPD, very late stage, so much so that when they had to sleep at night, they couldn't sleep in a bed because when you lie flat, you're suffocated. So they would sleep in a reclining chair, but not reclining it, and not sit facing forward, but get ready for this, sit facing backwards, leaning over the head of the chair, because that's the only way they could sort of breathe without feeling suffocated. So I think for those that work in this area who don't practice healthcare, thank you for working in this area, but sometimes what they don't appreciate fully is the individual level situation. Wow, I find that really, I don't know, and a really affecting example. And it is a good reminder, I think, of why we work in this field, certainly why I work in this field. Um, It resonates with me because a big reason why I'm interested in this area is through um, observing a very close family member of mine quit smoking when I was a child. And I remember it quite vividly, um, mainly because of how difficult I could see that they were finding it. And therefore, it just became something that I wanted to do, that I wanted to help people to, to give up smoking because I'd seen how difficult it was. Um, And so often I think in this field, if you're working on a trial or something like that, the participants ask you whether you've been a smoker yourself. And I completely understand why they might do that. Um, But I think it's important uh, for people to know that just because we may not have smoked ourselves, it doesn't mean that we don't have a huge amount of empathy for people who do. Um, And for me, that's 
solely, you know, why I have an interest in this field. And obviously examples that like that jazzers just give only reinforce the reasons why um why I want to do this so I think that's a really powerful example I agree I think it's it's incredibly powerful and and just like you I sometimes get asked if I have ever smoked as well and I never have um and also completely understand the question and for me the reason I suppose that I first got involved in tobacco research was actually back as an undergraduate in university when I I was getting really interested in public health and that interest for me came from a place where I um have lived with a long-term condition since a young age. I have type 1 diabetes. Uh, I got it as a child and realized pretty quickly that having a long-term illness is absolutely rubbish. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, And got really interested in, in kind of, I suppose, acknowledging that no one wants to have an illness and trying to do what we can do to help people uh, try and prevent those. And for me, I suppose one of my really illuminating moments further on down the line and, and what got me hooked, I suppose, on, on e-cigarette research is that when e-cigarettes were first coming out and we had, I suppose, a growing body of evidence, really, that they were they looked significantly less harmful than cigarettes. I was at a family dinner and, and a family member who was very much addicted to smoking and said to me, oh, I considered switching to e-cigarettes, but I heard on the radio um various scientists disagreeing and some someone said that that e-cigarettes are even worse for you than smoking so I'm just going to keep on smoking and and I really felt at that moment that we were doing something wrong as scientists in this area so I think it's it's a privilege to work on this and we need to keep working on it basically um so on that note I am going to let Jazz talk to us a bit about the reason why we contacted him in the first place which is that we wanted to hear about his really exciting new study With regards to our clinical trial, so with the pilot data, we said we need to do a randomized trial. We got some NIH funding, albeit a small grant, and we randomized in a two-to-one ratio so that we could get more experience with the e-cigarette. So we enrolled about 180 participants in total with a two-to-one randomization scheme, dual 5% compared to smoke your own as usual. And we enrolled people who were interested in switching to e-cigarettes. In the United States, we can't study as an outcome variable cessation. Um, In essence, when you're switching, the switch goal is to come off the combustible, but stay on the e-cigarette if you want to. I mean, to some extent, we're encouraging that. that, That's sort of the approach. It was a short-term study, six weeks, and the primary outcome was to study NNAL. This is a potent pulmonary carcinogen. And that was the outcome of interest. Obviously, we measured other things, including carbon monoxide, a respiratory symptom score that's been validated, cotinine, pulmonary function tests, some basic ones, as well as systolic and diastolic pressure. Great. Well, it's really interesting to hear about some of the the methods of the study. And what kind of struck me with that is that the e-cigarette that they use, Juul, is something that we don't really hear a lot about in the UK. Um, and obviously Jess mentioned that they used it at quite a high dosage. And again, I don't think that dosage is used commonly in the UK. Do you know anything more about that, Jamie? So that's absolutely right, Nicola. I mean, I think in the US, Juul is really, really commonly used. And I suppose those of us working in e-cigarette research in the UK kind of 
watched and waited to some extent to see if that was going to happen here. And it hasn't. Jewel hasn't taken off here in the same way as it has in the US. And there are probably a, a whole host of reasons for that, um, not least of which are, are advertising regulations. But also, as Jazz touched upon, in the States, uh, Jewel is available and e-cigarettes generally are available at a higher nicotine concentration than they are here in the UK um, and indeed throughout Europe because the reason we have a cap on the amount of nicotine that's in e-cigarettes comes from the European Union's Tobacco Products Directive, which basically limits the amount of nicotine in e-cigarettes to something that's less than, I suppose, the most common dose you'd have via Jewel in the US and less than the dose um that's tested in the study. And at face value, I think that seems, you know, a, a really sensible thing to do to limit the amount of nicotine in e-cigarettes, etc., especially if you're concerned about youth uptake. But there is, of course, a flip side to that, which which there's more and more research into. Um, and I suppose touches back again to the fact that nicotine itself is not what the harmful thing is in cigarettes, nor is it the harmful thing in e-cigarettes. So Jazz did actually go on and, and chat a little bit more about this nicotine dose issue. So I'll let you uh, listen to him explain it in a bit more detail. Yeah, so with our pilot data, we found through an open label trial, single arm, that uh, it looked like people could switch. We use Juul 5%. So in the United States, um, 5% nicotine is the dose that's available. And let me just say right now that that's the right percentage. In fact, that should be the floor, not the ceiling. And I know in the UK that that dose is not available, if you will. It's 3%. And, and that's, you know, that's concerning to me because you know, we don't, if we think about therapeutics, we don't say to someone, oh, use a 7 milligram nicotine patch or a 14 milligram because, oh, a 21 is too much or it's dangerous or anything like that. In fact, the pharmacokinetics show that all those doses are too low for the average smoker. Um, so sometimes we use double nicotine patches. Likewise, here's a product, and let me keep saying during this podcast that this is a product that is not safe. Um, that's not, we're not trying to, if this is not, we're not trying to get a therapeutic indication, at least in the United States, or at least right now. This is not a safe product. It's a harm reduction product. So the goal is to have the nicotine level in the product high and then to minimize the use of the product, if you will, right? Because if it's a lower nicotine strength, then you're going to use it to extract more nicotine. You're going to use more of it. And then you get, if you will, the so-called bad things, whatever they might be, heavy metals, uh, acrolein, and things like that. So another thing I noticed, Jamie, when Jazz was talking about the outcomes that they measured in their study was that they didn't actually mention or seem to measure smoking cessation or the number of people who'd managed to quit smoking. And that seems to be a little bit strange in a study of this type, that they wouldn't look at the number of people who actually ended up stopping using combustible cigarettes. Did you speak to him any more about that, Jamie? Yeah, so Nicola, absolutely. For us in the UK, that does seem strange. We think of the big trials here, which of course have measured smoking cessation, which is the ultimate aim. Um, I was also really puzzled about the situation in the US and trying to wrap my head around it. So I did ask Jazz to elaborate. And again, I'll let him explain the situation to you. And the reason we can't study cessation as outcome in the United States, the best I understand it, is that the FDA has different arms to it, if you will. One is a device unit. Another is a medicinal therapeutics unit. And in order to have, in order to study this for cessation, 
then you have to have a therapeutic indication. So you have to go through CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation, and get it approved as a medicinal product, as, as a therapeutic indication, the way nicotine patch, nicotine gum, varenicline, bupropion does. And it, you could also take it through the device category, but that probably wouldn't make much sense, sort of like a implantable defibrillator or something along those lines. As such, it goes through the Center for Tobacco Products as a tobacco product. So e-cigs, interestingly enough, in the United States are categories, categorized as a tobacco product. I actually don't think they should be, but that's how they're categorized. So because they didn't measure cessation in this study, Nicola, their primary outcome was changes in measure of exposure. And what they found was that at week six, the e-cigarette group had significantly greater reductions in NNAL, carbon monoxide, respiratory systems, and the number of cigarettes smoked in the past seven days amongst those people who are still smoking. And that is compared to the control group. There didn't seem to be any big change in cotinine levels, which is a measure of how much nicotine you're taking in. And lung function and blood pressure remained unchanged and didn't differ between the groups. So essentially, those were the main findings in terms of their primary outcomes of what they set out to measure. But actually, when I was talking to Jazz about this, he was also really excited about some of their other results. So we're not going to play a clip where he's explaining some of the other things they found in terms of their secondary outcomes. So the primary study, of course, in a randomized trial is to compare the two different arms, the e-cigarette group to the smoke your own. And in our paper, which was published in JAMA Network Open, that's, of course, the primary finding that we report. But in addition, we do report in the paper the secondary analyses, which, of course, break randomization, but are more intriguing, if you will, and very interesting which is that if you take all the people who are in the arm of getting the e-cigarettes, at the end of six weeks, they can be in one of four buckets. One bucket, which many people might view as the ideal bucket, and in fact, I would too as well, is that they quit cigarettes and they quit e-cigarettes, that they just sort of no longer want anything. Uh, In our study, we had zero people in that bucket, and that's fine. That's expected. The other bucket, if you will, maybe the ideal outcome in a harm reduction study is is that you are only using e-cigarettes and you're completely off combustibles. And for us, that was about 25% plus or minus. The second bucket, which most people view as a failure or as a no different than going back to cigarettes, is a very common bucket. It's the dual users. And for us, that was about 55% plus or minus who are dual using. I'll come back to that in a second. The third bucket is a bucket where you're going back fully to combustible cigarettes. And that was uh, about uh, 25% uh, as well, plus or minus. So that's a very interesting analysis because it suggests that if you get the e-cigarette and you're followed over time, and you can switch, which about a quarter of them could, that's quite good news. Interestingly enough, we also followed people. We didn't have the funding for it. Up to six months, we didn't see them in person, and we did phone follow-up. So there's no biochemical verification, but we have self-report. And the data gets more interesting. The number who successfully quit to e-cigarettes goes up. The people who actually quit both products, we actually had about 7 8% who quit both products. And if you combine that, those two numbers, that's a number that, if you will, are off combustibles, you're going above one-third of the group. 
So another notable part of this study that we haven't touched on yet is that it's conducted in African-American and Latinx populations. And I asked Jazz to talk a bit more about that as well. You know, things have histories to them. Um, Not to get too dramatic, but slavery, civil rights, um, immigrants, immigrants who don't enter in so-called legally and so on and so forth. And as such, folks are marginalized. Um, And then unfortunately, there's a correlation between socioeconomic status and, and, and being an underrepresented, historically under-marginalized minority, and such, you get further marginalized. So what happens is, traditionally, and you look at sort of pharmaceutical trials that lead to medications, they're basically white participants, white middle-class participants in this country. And so that when I got started in 1992, thinking about how I could contribute, I've always been interested both personally professionally, and even from my religious perspective, I'm a practicing Sikh, is that uh, social justice, caring for the underserved, worrying about marginalized populations is just core to what I do professionally and as a physician. So I began to study African Americans. And I think, you know, when I was doing that work, you're not going to believe this, there was really maybe one or two other people in the United States who were doing work in African-Americans are Latinx. Now, thank God, uh, through efforts that we started and many others did, there are now hundreds, and there are many people interested in studying these groups. Um, And, you know, we've learned things like metabolism being different in African-Americans, nicotine intake being different, levels of carcinogens being higher per unit cigarette that Neil Benowitz has done some elegant work on. And it's led to some very concerning and profound findings Average number of cigarettes smoked being lower in African-Americans, African-Americans and Latinx trying to quit more often, but especially African-Americans um, having a harder time quitting. And now, interestingly enough, the prevalence of smoking and the number of cigarettes smoked per day for Latinx and African-Americans is lower than whites. But unfortunately, especially for African-Americans, somehow they have greater harm. But the net population effect is that these two groups are affected more adversely. Uh, and that's sort of a whole nother hour dialogue. So what is really notable there is when Jazz talks about these differences that we're seeing emerge between the different ethnic groups. Um, so things like he was saying, the levels of carcinogens and the differences in metabolism. And that is something that really seems to be emerging. And I hope we see a lot more of in future studies, because obviously it's something that's really important to understand. Yeah, and I think e-cigarette research, you know, is somewhat in its infancy, but this is an area that that now we really need to do better on, Um, and actually probably in in healthcare research overall, but certainly e-cigarette research is not an exception. So for me, I think this interview just touched on so many interesting things. I could have talked to Jazz for hours. Uh, and at the core of all these these things we touched on, and arguably at the core of all e-cigarette research, is the issue of harms. So we're going to leave you today with some closing remarks from Jazz talking about how he conceptualizes the relative safety of e-cigarettes and how we might operate in this context. Let's just briefly talk about youth. Let me be go, let me go on record by saying, if you don't use nicotine, don't start. If you use nicotine or combustible tobacco products, or even non-combustible tobacco products, quit. If you can't quit, try to use harm reduction products. Get off combustibles. There's a whole spectrum of risk. There's no question about it. It would be 
almost unbelievable, not impossible, that e-cigarettes are as or more dangerous than cigarettes. That's, that's almost unfathomable, especially because we know the ingredients in cigarettes when there's 60 tumor accelerators, co-carcinogens, and carcinogens, and it's a combusted product versus a heated product that lacks essentially all those things that this is going to be more dangerous. I, I think what we're going to learn is that e-cigarettes, you know, uh, it's probably not good for your lungs. <laughs> That's the bottom line, e-cigarettes. That's doing something to the cilia, doing something to the epithelium, and we need to understand that. The concern that people have in the lay public or even the scientific world is that, oh, well, we don't know the long-term outcome of e-cigarettes. That's going to, I can't argue against that. I'm going to agree. We don't know the long-term outcomes. We never will until we have the long-term. But if you can use, I mean, if you want to know, does it decrease the onset of COPD or heart attacks, you're going to need cohort or randomized trials for 15 to 20 years. I can't wait 15 to 20 years. I can't wait for that patient that I saw in 1988 and watch them smother and die. I need to get them off combustibles. That's it from us. Thank you so much for listening and a massive thanks to Jazz for the interview. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to us via iTunes or Spotify. We very much hope to be bringing you another episode next month. Switching to vaping is safer than smoking May help you quit in the end But remember to mention the findings we have Can't tell us what'll happen long term Even though we know vaping is safer than smoking We may still find cause for concern If you're thinking of switching to vaping Do it! That's what the experts agree Smoking's so bad for you, they all concur The vaping beast burning, there's much to learn Of effects long term yet to be seen Thank you so much for listening to our second episode of Let's Talk E-Cigarettes. You've been listening to Nicola Linson and Jamie Harbin-Boyce with thanks to our guest this month, Professor Jaz Alualia. Music is performed by Johnny Berliner. Thanks also to Jonathan Livingston-Banks for running our monthly searches, to Elsa Butler for editing this podcast, and to all our brilliant Cochrane co-authors for helping us sift through and interpret the literature. This podcast is made possible through funding from Cancer Research UK and through core infrastructure funding to the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group from the National Institute for Health Research. The views expressed are those of the authors and not necessarily those of the National Institute for Health Research or the Department of Health and Social Care.